Hello and welcome to WNHH Radio's Dateline New Haven. I'm your host, Paul Bass, inviting you to look behind the headlines on the stories that make New Haven tick. Uh, we have three guests in our studio today who are helping keep New Haven a home for dreamers. Undocumented immigrants brought to the country as infants and children. Their fate is in limbo now that President Trump has decided he wants to kick them out of the country. But two judges have decided, hold on, I'm going to try to figure this thing out in the courts first. Joining us today are Sergio Almeida Ramirez, youth and community organizer for Hunter Progressive Action on Grand Avenue, one of our great agencies fighting for the rights of the Latino community. Paula Saracia, did I say that right, Paula? Yes. Pretty close. Okay. The uh, Hunter's Director of Advocacy, and Ellen Messily. Messali? Messily. Messily, okay. <laughs> All right. The first time, a staff attorney at New Haven Legal Association. Welcome, everyone. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having us. And our special thanks to Yale Haven Hospital for providing support for today's program. So, folks, Monday was a deadline. Uh, President Trump had said the program was going to be allowed to expire, a program called DACA, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, that people are going to have to, kids are going to have to leave the country as of Monday. But two advocates went to court nationally, and two federal judges said no, put a halt to it. To this. So it's going to work its way up to the appeals court and to the U.S. Supreme Court. In the meantime... There are all these young people trying to figure out where they live and where they're going to get to live. And here in New Haven, people like you folks are on the ground trying to help them stay here. So uh, so what? tell me exactly what DACA, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, what exactly does that mean? Um, well, um, first of all, thank you for having us, Paul. Well, thanks here. for coming. Um, very happy to be here. Uh, I'm a dreamer myself. Um, I got DACA when uh, President Obama created it back in 2012. The first action for childhood arrivals is really an opportunity to the American dream, um, giving us uh, protections from deportation and a work permit so that we can uh, advance our careers. It was through that that I felt part of the American public and that I could pursue what I wanted to do in this country. Um, since then, I have graduated from college and now I'm working at Junta for Progressive Action now, trying to coordinate legal services for immigrant communities. So just trying to give back to the community. Um, but with this anxiety and uncertainty of what's going to happen with my future, um, my life, it's sort of held or was held with every continuing resolution in um, negotiation from four weeks to four weeks and to today. Um, the so you're still, you're still here because of DACA? Definitely, yes. So you would have to leave the country, Sergio? Um, I hope not. Expires. But if, if that's what it will come down to. And oh, my goodness. This fear deadline that, um, you know, Congress said it would never really arrive. It's it's definitely here, and um, I was lucky that I was able to renew uh, when the announcement of the rescission happened. But there's people. A lot of people didn't renew. They did not renew. I mean, in Connecticut. So how long are you renewed for? Um, to 2019, I believe. Um, so if Donald Trump has his way, and DACA does not get renewed, you can stay here through 2019, and you'd have to leave. Well, we don't know about that, and those are questions that only Congress yeah. can provide. Um, once DACA is gone for good, and right now what holds it back is the is the courts. Um, we don't know if they will um, abide by the promises to let the work permits expire, or if they will take them right away. And then, so what's that been like? So, Serge, you came here at nine years old, correct? Correct. From what country? From uh, Mexico. Do I remember correctly that you went to Hopkins? Is that not right? I went to Hopkins, right? Yeah, yes. and then where did you go to college? Santa Clara University in California. And then you went, you came back home to be part of your community. You worked as an intern for U.S. Representative Rosa DeLauro. Yes. And correct. I mean, you're basically a model citizen. And yet, you've have you always felt 
that any day the rules can change or every how many how often do you get DACA renewed since 2008 I've had it I think uh, two times renew um, so it's every two years um, so have you always felt like I have only two years here I always felt that it's temporary uh, and I always felt that uh, there's a limit to my potential um, and mm-hmm. when you place hopes on you know what will happen in two years I remember in high school before I went to Hopkins and uh, I really learned about you know what it, that education is freedom. Uh, I felt that it was better for me to just go into a, a job that would pay me minimum wage um, and let go of my dreams. Um, what what is your what is your dream now? Well, now I want to be a lawyer. Uh, I want to be an immigration lawyer, um, and I want to be uh, giving back to my community and making sure that everyone has due process. I mean, a lot of people that get in trouble with immigration is because um, they don't know this country, first of all. They don't know these languages. They don't understand these laws. Uh, and a lot of them are victims and are, um, are, are in the middle of a for-profit detention center. Um, that I have witnessed, you know, that, that does horrific things uh, at the southern border, which we need to fix, uh, and that's why I want to continue, you know, to... Are you applying to law school? Uh, soon I will be. <laughs> All right, good luck. And uh, so why do you want to stay in this country? Uh, this is the only home I know. It's I, where you grew up. Uh, it was where I grew up. I've been here more years than I have been in Mexico. Um, I was born there, but I've been here 14 years. I was able to go back on advanced parole, um, and one of the things that I remember so vividly was people from my hometown saying, why are you acting like this? You're not in the United States. And what I said was, regardless of where I go, this is who I am. And if those values are American values, um, you know, I cannot deny it. That's my nature. And, you know, what it, what that really boils down to is, and for me, what I think American is, is that sense of adventure that you can create your own destiny. Mm-hmm. Uh, that um, that you have those inali- those inherited in, in, and inalienable rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, um, and that's what I remember in school learning, and what I said that's what I want to do and what I want to venture into. Until today, uh, I say I want to be an immigration lawyer, but uh, I do want to do that, but I don't know what my future holds because that's also something that I want to venture into, and it's you know. Uh, that's what's American that I'm yet to explore. Uh, and if I'm able to stay here permanently, you know, if Congress can give us a solution, then that makes it so much easier because I say, you know, law school is four years. I don't depend on this two-year temporary protection status that might go away. And, mm-hmm. you know, what will happen then? All right. So DACA is Deferred Action of Childhood Arrivals. When we talk about DREAMers. We're talking about the DREAM Act. What exactly does DREAM stand for? Uh, DREAM Act is... It's an acronym. Um, so Dream Act is a version of various legislations that have um, arise in 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 Congress and in Senate, going back to 2012. Um, what Dream Act really is is a permanent stay, a path to citizenship for people who have been here, at, who were brought here as kids, and who are working and having um, productive lives. Uh, people who are now protected under DACA. It is a simple solution to give them a path to citizenship. Uh, and it's something that the American public favors. Uh, more than I, 80%, the latest poll show, that's what um, the American public wants. Um, it's just Congress who lacks uh, the, the will, the political will to get, to, to get acting. Mm-hmm. So now we have 12, uh, the estimate is that every day in this country, 
1,200 people are no longer in compliance with DACA. That they, they, they've been here and they no longer, you know, if with the program gone, they don't, they can't stay here anymore. Do you folks know how many people in New Haven are affected currently are without DACA protection and how many daily are falling out? Any kind of estimates for that? I don't know about uh, here in, in New Haven. Uh, I know that I think it's approximately um, 5,000 young people um, in Connecticut have um, or had, again, as the program is sort of gradually expiring for some, um, have had DACA. Um, so uh, while I can't imagine that our Connecticut figure looks like the national figure, um, certainly individuals here in connect in Connecticut. 5,000 young people's lives are at stake. Yes, correct. That, that in here in of. Connecticut, correct. And those are people who have the status or the status has expired. Correct. Now, some people, there were a lot of stories in the press about how even though there was this period from when Trump announced the program would end and when the deadline passed, that a lot of people weren't able to go get signed up again, that they had trouble getting to the offices or there was poor communication. What do you folks know about that? Well, first of all, there was only a limited number of people who um, sort of were allowed to renew at that point. So we're talking about a a limited number of DACA recipients whose DACA status would expire between um, when the announcement was made and March 5th when the program was set to expire. Um, So we're talking about still a limited number of DACA recipients um, and I think that there um, were probably a number of reasons why individuals could not or did not renew their status. Um, so many people are fearful. Um, there's so much um, fear and intimidation coming out of this administration that um, many people may have let fear come in the way of renewing their DACA status, um, potentially not having the funds to renew DACA status as there is a fee. And we have wonderful organizations here in Connecticut that were raising money for scholarships for young people, but still some may not have known about that um, and not always having the help to renew the status. That's why um, my colleagues and I at New Haven Legal Assistance and Sergio and his colleagues at Junta um, tried to provide um, a, a lot of guidance for individuals who are renewing their, their DACA status who could renew it. And we're talking about DACA, about dreamers, people who are born here, undocumented immigrants who are brought to the country as infants or children and now are facing possible deportation there lies in limbo, and the people in New Haven are trying to help them stay here. Sergio Meda Ramirez, Paula Sericia from Junta, and Ellen Messali from uh, New Haven Legal Assistance. So, so tell me about why it's important. Why, now, we heard Sergio's story. We get why it's important, why we want to have Sergio stay here. In general, you know, people like myself feel who descended from immigrants that immigrants made our city and our community stronger as part of what we are as a nation, that there's a justice reason they should stay here, especially those who are fleeing uh, places where their lives are at risk, mm-hmm. but even for more opportunity. But also there's a reason, you know, that some of them spent their whole lives here and they're here and they didn't make those decisions as kids. Although I think sometimes that argument then tries to posit the parents as boogeymen or criminals, but also there's economic reasons. And in fact, um, if you look at Fairhaven, it was really the influx of immigrants from Latin America who revived that neighborhood, the way that Italian and Jewish immigrants in the late 1800s, early 1900s, built up that neighborhood before it had a period of decline. But tell me more. Tell me how you see it from the front lines, Paolo. What, why do you think it's important when you do this work every day to try to keep DACA people in the country? Well, first I want to say is that um, these are human beings, and whether you're an immigrant, non-documented, we all started in America as that. 
um, people actually have a voice um, and that should have the opportunity to come to this great country and be able to have the pursuit of justice and liberty. I also feel that if we're looking at citizenship, which I know a lot of people from across the aisles will discuss that, there really is no pathway um, to citizenship. It makes it very, there's a lot of struggles and a lot of adversities and a lot of people that are putting difficulty. This problem did not start. And this was something that was created. This deadline was actually created by another human being. And I think that we really need to think about how are we going to, as a nation, still open our hearts and our arms and our country to immigrants. Immigrants are how we started here. Every single person that has been a citizen has started as an immigrant. And I think that sometimes we forget that people actually need that helping hand to be able to become a citizen. Paula, you know, what, what, you know your, your role is advocacy, in charge of advocacy. Yes. Hunter. What do you do on a typical day, let's say this week or last week, in terms of advocating for So right now against? what we're looking to do and what we were working on yesterday is working with the clergy and faith-based communities to talk about having a safe haven. I'm working with the Rosa Deloro's office, and the safe haven is really to um, bring in clergy together and to be able to put in wraparound services. And so what I mean by that, it's that it's a community response, that we're not just putting in people in sanctuary homes, but we're actually putting them in a place where they will have a community response. So, so is this the exact same idea what we're seeing in our community with sanctuary movement? It isn't just put place where you put them, but where congregations say, if you get a deportation order and you have to leave the country for adults, we're letting you stay in our churches. We just had our fourth case that three of them have ended in victory, including the one last night in first of summer fair where someone instead of leaving went to a church because the immigration agents won't go into the church. And then they got permission to stay while their case keeps going. But that you often find other congregations that, feel the part of the movement don't house the people, but have people sign up to draw people to appointments to help the family with legal needs, you know, find them lawyers like you or, uh, or clothes or whatever. Is that what you're talking about? The exact and, same and thing and for yes, DACA, um, a parallel? I think that a lot of times what we do is we um, put so much um, effort on having the sanctuary homes, and those are the churches and the synagogues, and thank goodness they're doing such a great job, but they can't do it on their own either. And I think that there has to be resource centers across um, the country, and we would like to start that in Connecticut, where actually people, let's say somebody goes into one of the churches, and that church is able to house somebody, just maybe the father. And now that father cannot work anymore. So there's agencies and organizations across Connecticut and in New Haven that could assist maybe or childcare, transportation, diapers, um, English-speaking classes, employment for the other members of the family. And just so I get it straight, this is parallel to what's being done with adults. It sounds like you're trying to expand the sanctuary and support network for children Us. who have been come here on, uh, whose DACA authorization expires. Exactly, and we're also looking at the trauma that actually the children and the families are going through, and we can't minimize that as well. We really need to look at the impact. And so to be able to have 
a sanctuary safe home, um, that a safe place that the family can go to, but then also to be able to know that it's safe to go out to the community and get some of the other resources so that the churches and the synagogues also get extra support. And there's fabulous places that are doing things already. It's just adding that community response that we're all involved and making a change. Sergio, you want to jump in there? So, um, yeah, I think it is very parallel to what uh, adult, uh, the system that already happens with adults. Um, I think what is key and something that is different is that there, there are some issues that sometimes are not addressed, like mental health problems for the family that arises sort of later into later um, in the priorities of you know fighting that case for the person to stay here. Uh, which is critical, um, but also that there is going to be this massive need for more churches to open their doors. And so what we're really trying to do is, as Paula mentioned, is this community response that goes beyond people that are involved now, people who have always been involved. It is uh, going to all the churches and say that there is this need for people who are working people for all, you know, working people in our communities uh, who are going to be under the threat of deportation um, and to stand and send that um, statement to the government or representatives to say, no, you're even if DACA is uh, removed, you're not going to remove these people from our communities. And if we have to open our churches, here are a list of 100 churches that are open for them to come and seek refuge. Um, you know, and if alternative work has to become remotely, you know, from our computers, uh, that's the kind of community response that it's going to take. Um, and I think what is crazy in these times that we're talking about sanctuary state and sanctuary city in New Haven, a place that has always been a safe haven for immigrants, a place that, um, you know, ICE officers came into our city and violated our constitutional rights of our people, which is why we say we cannot collaborate with them. Um, to me, this feels like uh, in Arizona during SB 1070 of Show Me Your Papers. And that enforcement of, um, of, of ICE agents in our streets really needs uh, everyone to be alert uh, and for people to sign up on um, race alerts uh, so that we can combat this uh, and really provide that safe heaven because um, there is going to be that need. Of those people, of, of, the, of the DACA recipients in Connecticut, a thousand people were eligible to renew between those six months. Uh, the other four thousands are gonna, gonna soon start expire. Their their permits are gonna start expiring. Now you know the the people that Alan mentioned, people who couldn't renew because it was so short notice or they didn't have the fee. We have people in our offices that come and, ha- and need help because of that. Um, those are the cases that we're struggling with because the administration created this problem. If they had it, if they didn't have a solution yet, you know why cause a problem? Mm-hmm. Now I. Lawyers have been pressed into service since Donald Trump's election. I've spoken to lawyers who, this is what they're doing. They're doing it around the clock. Has that been the case for you, Ellen Messaly? Is that Are you mostly doing immigration work? Yes. Um, the majority of the work that I do at New Haven Legal Assistance is immigration work. Um, and we have been um, really stepping up uh, what we have been offering to, to immigrants who come through our doors, um, trying to um, see if there's any possible solution, both in renewing DACA for individuals who were DACA eligible, uh, renew, uh, eligible to renew their DACA through screening clinics that we um, did in collaboration with Junta, um, 
at this point also doing screening clinics for people who all who have DACA and it may be set to expire to see if they may have a more permanent option for status that they had never explored before that they didn't know existed so that we might be able to take those individuals on as clients or find them pro bono attorneys for the cases that we we can't handle in-house um, so that they are not dependent upon the DACA program that is so in flux right now. Um, and, and in addition to uh, working with individuals who have DACA or um, maybe will be having that status lap soon, um, we are also trying to work with uh, the individuals who have had to take sanctuary in some of our local churches um, to um, get them uh, the relief that they need quickly because so many of them have been put in positions where, um, you know, they they believe that their um, ability to remain in the United States is is relatively safe. And then they learn from ICE agents that in less than a month they need to be departing the country. ICE is Immigration and Customs Enforcement, yes. part of the Department of Homeland Security, right. Federal Department. So, um, Ellen, and if I how, could just yeah, say yeah. one thing regarding um, ICE and the police, because I think this is something that. And if you get close need, to the mic, please, Pella. I'm sorry. No problem. Um, something that people need to know is um, we ended up having a lieutenant from Fairhaven uh, here in New Haven to come and talk with children that are actually at risk of being deported and also their family members to being deported. And a lot of the children talked about um, that they don't report crimes that are inflicted upon them because of fear that What kind of crimes? So anything from robbery to sexual abuse mm. to um, to walking down the streets and getting bullied and punched in the face, um, yeah. these things are actually still happening in our United States, and they're in fear of actually reporting this. And I think it's important for people to know their rights. Well, one um, of the big arguments that police chiefs, including some who voted for Donald Trump, have been making to the federal government is that we feel our cities are safer if the vast majority of immigrants who follow our laws feel comfortable coming to the police with information rather than being scared they're going to get deported if they come. It actually makes for a safer city. Of course. Of course. course. Yes. I mean, and it, and that's, that's the issue is that they're not feeling safe though. Um, there are ways that you can get an ID here um, in Connecticut um, but at the same time, they won't do it because they feel if their name is documented somewhere, are they right? That ICE would be able to find them. Are they and, right? Um, you know what? In this new administration, I, I, I would. It would be unfair for me to say. I don't blame them. That no, you're going to be safe because I wouldn't want to put anybody at risk. And these when, are people's lives. When Connecticut um, first uh, instituted the drive-only license um, for individuals who may have been undocumented, but, um, you know, needed to have a driver's license, needed to get to work every day, needed to drop children off at school, needed to run to the pharmacy to get prescriptions. Um, you know, I I was very enthusiastic about that program and was telling all, you know, all of my clients, you can go and apply for a driver's license now. And this is a good thing because we want everybody to have a license and have cars insured and um, vehicles registered. And, um I I feel less inclined to recommend that to clients now um, that we don't know which programs 
aimed at being beneficial for our entire community are, you know, now going to be used as tools against our immigrant community. Ellen, how long have you been working at Legal Aid? Uh, I've been there for uh, just a year and a half now. Did you come to yes. do immigration law? I did. I was doing uh, immigration work uh, previously at the International Institute of Connecticut, which is now the Connecticut Institute for <laughs> Refugees and Immigrants. I was there for just about four years doing immigration legal services before coming to New Haven. And how much of your how has that job changed over the years in terms of, uh, in the in terms of what kind of people you're seeing and what kind of cases? Sure. Um, so I, I, you know, I think that um, um, one thing is that, you know, fear is always there in our immigrant communities or certainly um, an amount of skepticism um, is always there. And I know, in, you know, in, in the past, when I started my career under the Obama administration, there was a lot that I could say that I felt sure of that could be very reassuring to my clients that, okay, you know, you're undocumented. However, you have no criminal history. You have never had any kind of encounter with immigration before you, you pay your taxes, you go to your job, you're, you're, you know, you're just the most, um, uh, you're a wonderful member of our community and, and therefore you don't have to, ICE is not looking for you. Um, and I felt like I could say that with confidence and that it could reassure my clients um, and anymore, I cannot. I, I cannot tell my clients who should have no reason to fear immigration that they, in fact, do have no reason to fear immigration. So that is something that I'd say is a, a dramatic change from when I started doing this work. Um, and also just the the rate at which we all have to be prepared to respond is so is so different from what it used to be. We we you know we we work now in sort of these rapid response teams, and there was just never a need for that before because immigration never put anyone in a position where um, we are requesting that you leave the country within a matter of weeks or within a, a month, um, to the point where everybody just has to drop what they're doing and 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 put our arms around this family this community and and try to find a way to prevent that from happening what why did you go into the work Ellen what made you focus on immigration law um so this was purely the result of the um uh the asylum and human rights clinic at the University of Connecticut School of Law which I had the um I have the incredible honor of being an alum of the clinic um, uh, John Bauer has been the uh, professor there for, I believe, since 2002 um, at that clinic. And um, he is just, um, if I am ever half the lawyer that he is today, it will be a huge accomplishment for my, my professional and, and my personal life. And I just wanted to, you know, he taught me um, what it is to be able to um, impact someone's life and generations of their family so so um, dramatically when you're able to help them. And he taught me how to do it successfully and how to do it ethically and compassionately. And um, I just, I've sort of been hooked ever since. And Paula, how long have you been doing advocacy at Junta? Well, at Junta, um, it's been about five months. <laughs> what were you doing before that? Um, but before then, I was doing advocacy for over 25 years. Where's Where? And so it ranged anywhere from mental health clinics, sexual mm. assault crisis centers, 
domestic violence um, and also up at the Capitol as an advocacy uh, group. And so for me, it's really about that everybody has a voice, um, that everybody has rights, um, and that we're all human first. And where'd you grow up, Helen? Um, so I grew up in Italia and Argentina and Puerto Rico. I was actually born in Puerto Rico, San Juan. Um, and so we're also working. So you've always been a citizen? Yes. And what? why this kind of advocacy? Why immigration advocacy? So I, I feel like with the population of non-documented, um, there are champions, um, but they're all stretched so thin. And I really feel like that the community together needs to come and put their arms around everyone that is supporting the non-documented. I feel like they are uh, treated as second-class human beings. And whether I'm, I'm not an immigrant, but my heart and my and compassion and empathy for people that do not have a voice and the people that actually feel like they don't have a right to have a voice. And that is why I do this work. All right. Now, you're listening about this work, about trying to help dreamers and in the limbo right now with the fate of the DACA program under assault. Here on Dateline New Haven, WNHH Radio, your home for community radio, 103.5 FM, live stream at newhavenindependent.org. We're talking to Sergio Almeida Ramirez and Palace Sericia at, uh, at Hunta and Ellen Masali at Legal Aid. So let's talk about the bigger picture. You know, earlier, Sergio made a point earlier in the program when he said this, pro- this problem was created because we don't have a solution to the immigration question in our country. Our political, our national political system is stymied. You get people, including Republicans and Democrats, who agree on certain kind of bills that would set the rules for how to deal with the over 10 million people here without permission. And what's the real number? You know, I, I, I believe it is maybe around 11 million, million people. Now, so, you know, most yes. people say, you know, I can kick everybody out. So what should we do about it? And that because of different domestic politics, that they can't come to agreement even when there seems to be a consensus. So you talked about we need a longer term solution rather than just saying, let's throw out everyone on deck and now, or let's keep that in limbo or what is that solution? What should it look like? Should everyone just be able to come in? Should there be rules for how many or what the process should be? Well, my thoughts um, are that, I mean, I, we, you know, it, I think it, it may make sense to design, um, you know, different, different programs for individuals who are, are in the United States already, where this has been their home for decades, like a lot of our DACA individuals and also people who are looking to enter the United States. Um, You know, what we ask of individuals who uh, apply for DACA is to to establish good moral character. They can't have, um, you know, a a, a felony conviction. They can't have more than several minor misdemeanor convictions. Um, You know, so we're we're asking these people to be um, good citizens and people who um, uh, are, are willing to get an education, get some kind of vocational training or basically prove that they're looking to advance their lives. Um, and I think that that's what we should ask of anyone who wants to get lawful status here, but have it be something that isn't temporary like DACA. Show so us- would you immediately give the 11 million or so people here without documentation citizenship, a path to citizenship, mean they could start applying? I would give them a path to citizenship, And, just, yes. and then what some people say is, 
now people who are against undocumented immigrants immigration, they say, why should those people go first in line? That's how they call it. Mm-hmm. What about someone who quote followed the rules? Why should you reward someone doing without the rules and put them ahead of someone who's been waiting in the rules? How do you deal with that question? Well, there there is. Um, I think what a lot of people who who might respond that way um, that they that they don't understand that this right way that they refer to is is almost non-existent. Um, there there is no application online. Do you want to come to the United States? Click these boxes. Um, you know, so many people who came here without uh, a visa or some other mechanism of entry did so because they were fleeing horrific circumstances um, and and truly they were making a decision to save their lives when there just wasn't um, any other way to do so other than head north. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I don't think that by allowing those people to prove that they are people of good moral character, to prove that they should be allowed citizenship, I don't think that that in any way affects people who may have been able to come to the United States lawfully. They will continue to be allowed to come to the United States lawfully or should be able to continue to do so. But I don't see how it disadvantages those people in any way to allow individuals to prove themselves worthy of permanent residence and, and would you have any limits on either numbers or terms you talked about following the law while you're here just any of you do you think that we should limit the number of people who can come into the united states you know i think uh the immigration um it's a crisis it's a crisis that has uh existed and uh because we have outdated policies if we go back to the last um immigration reform that happened because there was uh a and uh, a guest worker program called the Rosetto that existed from almost 1924 to 1960. It ended around 60, 64. Uh, people who uh, have been coming to the United States to work as as Brasettos, um, they remain in the country after the program expired. And it was of it was after it was after that uh, the administration sought them and gave them a path to citizens for those people. Um, so you know, for my for people who say. Um, you know, should we allow those people to stay here? My question is, should we exploit their labor and continue that and continue to give them second class citizenship because they have been here for more than 14 years? I know community members. No, I mean, new people. Let's new say we people. said 11 million, 11 million people mm-hmm. here. You're here. We're not going to be unrealistic. We're not going to be inhumane. You're staying here. We get a, a rules for how you stay here. What about moving forward? Should everyone be able to come to the country? Most people, should there be a basis? I'm not talking about. Donald Trump saying he's be from Norway. I mean, what what, what do you th- what do you think the real rules should be? This might not be a popular answer that I'm going to give, but um, I do believe. Okay, so I do believe we should not have a limit on how many human beings we allow in the United States. That would go against um, the liberty and what we decided many many decades ago that we would do, which is having the liberty stand there with the torch so that people could see them coming in. So I don't believe that we should limit that. But I do think that there should be a pathway to citizenship, a pathway. And within that pathway, there should be some sort of, and this is when we're talking across the aisle, and because there does need to, I mean, across the aisle means other human beings. And so I do think that, you know, if there were criminal activity 
Um, if there were things that are violent crimes, yes, we do need to look at that. Um, whether that's a popular um, thing or not, that is how I feel, Baulasaretia, that we do need to be clear about that. And that's the only part that I might actually agree with um, from the other side. And what about numbers? Like, uh, numbers, you no. feel that we can, I, that if why, a billion people want to come to the United States, a billion people, like, do you think communities ever come. say they can't? They pay taxes. They go to Walmart. They go buy, they purchase um, items and they're good for revenue. We don't think about that. Sergio, when he goes to work every day, he pays for gas. He pays to, for food. He pays for clothes. We are going to lose revenue. He pays taxes. And people don't realize that even undocumented workers contribute that way. They, undocumented giving workers a lot more all than the time they're taking. are contributing yeah. back. And because if of the limits. If we really took in, that stance that everybody's to leave and to be deported, I want to say a lot of uh, people that are U.S. citizens wouldn't do the occupations that they do. And they would not humble themselves to pay taxes without having a path to citizenship. It is time now to move forward in action. It's enough about talking. One thing across the aisle. So a lot of people talk about let's do immigration reform. And so this is this huge umbrella of trying to take over this immigration reform. But I do believe sometimes with something like DACA, which actually across the aisles, both sides agree that they should have a pathway to citizenship, that might actually be a gateway to do real immigration reform. Any other thoughts about real immigration reform? Thank you, Paula. Um, what what you want to see it look like? Oh, what, well, what I want to see it look like, yes, is is a pathway to citizenship where people can um, establish that they deserve it in in a real way. Um, you know, right now, it's people have such limited ways to enter the United States lawfully. And it almost is exclusively about whether you have family here that can sponsor you for status, not cousins, not, you know, uh, uh, uncles twice removed, um, you know, like many people might believe, but parents, siblings, children who can bring them here. And, and the way to... Um, and that is an incredibly limited way to be able to come into a country. So I do think that we need to look at broadening um, who can apply for immigrant status lawfully and, and make it in a way where people can prove that when they do come to this country, they're going to be um, productive, um, engaging uh, citizens. Harry Joss writes in, there is no process how do one million legal immigrants come in. So he says the process does exist for people who do it legally. There is a process. There is. It's, it is just incredibly limited and it is um, incredibly lengthy. So for instance, for individuals who want to apply um, um, uh, so if the gang is outside your house in it, um, El Salvador and say, we're going to shoot you up and your family tomorrow, <laughs> you say in five years, you might get an answer. Or or 12, if it's your brother who is a U.S. citizen petition. And Harry you. asks about if it should be merit-based and how does one decide what merit means? Yeah, I think we really need to have a conversation about what that merit looks like. But I think that um, you know, across the aisle, we could probably agree that um, we we look at individuals who have proven themselves, um, uh, you know, to to be productive individuals. To like not a lot have of like officials stand up history. and say, well, you say you want computer programmers. I came here from someone who, you know, had no money 
and didn't go to school and now I'm a congressperson that it's it's not a, or built a big company the Priskers can you know they started from an immigrant who came who didn't have anything so they're saying it's kind of not a smart idea to be thinking about job categories. Sure. And I don't think that we should be thinking about categories. I don't think that we should say, you know, you have to have some type of post-secondary education to come to the United States. Um, I think that we should just looking be looking for individuals who um, can establish that they um, uh, want to want to improve their lives, that they um, have, um, uh, you know, have shown that they are not individuals who, who, who break the law. Harry um, comments, low-skilled, uneducated workers is not great for the country. You know, th- this is the land of opportunity, and that's really what immigration is about. Um, low, what was the common low-skill uh, labor? That's what I was doing at Dunkin' Donuts. That's what, is that what he's referring to? Because that's what I did at Dunkin' Donuts. Uh, when I got out of uh, Hopkins, um, I went for a six-hour shift, and then when I went home, I started my homework. Uh, and that's how I got, that's how I paid my way through uh, Hopkins on a scholarship. And when I went to college, it was the same way. Um, I think that this is the land of opportunity. And when we're talking about merit, uh, it's so contradicting to say we want a merit-based system and then go ahead and just be, you know, kind of slap dreamers on the face and say you're out of status, even though you have proven to be, you know, contributing members of society. I mean, what I believe was American was that you were that through hard work, uh, you were as a self-made man. That's what, in my childhood, when I was growing up, that's what I admire too and what I aspire. Today, I think I'm the fulfillment of that. But I don't have a permanent state to be able to do that. So, you know, this is the land of opportunity. And uh, if we're really going to just uh, let in people who are already successful, um, you know, that we are going to lose. Our history has shown that you can't yeah. guess who's going to be this. And I think that right. that's also very unfair because... I'm a U.S. citizen, and my first job was working in a factory, and I was homeless, sleeping in my car, going to school. And I, if my last name or where I was born was different, does that make me a less of an opportune person? To, you know, said he'll worked at Dunkin' or have Donuts. less potential. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I have more at potential. A factory. There Why is, a, is there a difference? There is a place in our economy, uh, an important place in our economy, for people who have post-secondary education and people who ha- are, are lower skilled workers. We need everyone um, in our economy. Uh, I guess the bottom line is if people are going to be law-abiding citizens, uh, even if they don't have citizens, citizenship status, if they're not a threat to society, if they're going to be here and be productive members, you know, let them stay because they will be good for the country. They won't create problems. They'll create revenue, like Paula has said. Mm-hmm. All right. So, you know, thanks for Filling us in on what's going on with Dreamers, what's going on with DACA, and the great work you three are doing. In closing, we've talked about the big picture. What about the small picture tomorrow, next week, this year? What what three, what are each of you going to be doing next to try to keep DACA recipients in this country? I guess what's follow is uh, to really encourage everyone uh, who's eligible for this renewal to take on those protections. At Junta and New Haven Legal Aid will be... So go to Junta on Grand Avenue and Legal Aid on New Haven Legal Assistance Association on State Street. Mm-hmm. Or they can call Junta's number, 203-787-0191 and book an appointment every Tuesday or Thursday. They're available. Um, and also you ask people who want to help out with undocumented immigrants to be part of a network you're expanding from adults to include children of not just houses of worships where you seek sanctuary, refuge, but also do support 
your child care, diapers, the donations, time, expertise. Mm-hmm. How does someone get linked up with that? Just uh, definitely uh, come into Junta or contact us. Uh, but there's um, going to be a lot of need for entrepreneurship to be happening and for uh, su- our community supporters in creating new alternative jobs for people who are, um, you know, without um, a work permit and stuff like that. So just connect with us and also attorneys. Uh, we, there's a need for to increase capacity on the immigration side. So uh, people who want to pass information on how to be informed. Um, Come and volunteer with us. All right. Well, thank you for joining us today in Dateline New Haven and WNHH Radio. What a pleasure it was to speak with Sergio Almeida Ramirez, Palace Saratia, and Ellen Messali on the front lines of the movement for social justice and immigrant refer- immigration reform. Special thanks to Yale New Haven Hospital for providing support for today's program. We're going to take it out with the Afro-Semitic experience performing I Wish I Knew How It Feel to Be Free from the group CD, A Plea for Peace. Now we know what it's like to be free. We just gotta remember to book our flight. Book your flight with us all day and all night long here at WNHH, New Haven's home for community radio. (laughs) 